The following program is being brought to you on the Voice America Variety Channel. For more information about our network and to check our additional show hosts and topics of interest, please visit voiceamericavariety.com. The Voice America Talk Radio Network is the worldwide leader in live Internet talk radio. Visit voiceamerica.com. The views and ideas expressed on the following program are strictly those of the host or guests and do not necessarily reflect the views and ideas held by the Voice America Talk Radio Network, its staff, and management. Welcome to P.I.'s Declassified, an inside look at the world of private investigators. Your host is Francie Kaler, a noted private investigator. Francie and her guests take you behind the scenes and into the genuine, sometimes gritty business of investigation. You'll hear stories from the trenches with plenty of surprises. Here's your host, Francie Kaler. Well, good morning. Today is the final show for the 2013 Gift of Exoneration series, and this is a tough one for me because I did the original investigation. So just this past March, 10 months ago, Johnny Williams of Oakland, California, became one of the 29 individuals exonerated in the United States in 2013, and 14 of those were exonerated by DNA, according to the Innocence Network. So Johnny was also one of three exonerated by the Northern California Innocence Project in 2013, an amazing record. And that was from two counts of forcible lewd conduct and one count of attempted rape. Now, I'm sure there are many people in this country who believe that if an individual is arrested for a terrible crime, they are certainly guilty. In this case, even more so, as this involved the attempted rape of a nine-year-old girl. The girl said Johnny did it. Johnny Williams was a neighbor and a friend of the family, and he became the suspect. He was convicted and served 14 years, 14 years in prison. And it's a, can tell you it's a sobering thought to think that a person on a case where I personally was the investigator, working for the attorney on the pretrial and trial phase, to spend time in prison but is innocent. So, therefore, I truly appreciate Johnny being uh, giving me the opportunity to tell this story. Hopefully, he'll be able to join the show uh, along uh, with his attorney who's here right now from the Northern California Innocence Project, Melissa O'Connell. Good morning, Missy. Good morning, Francie. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. Thanks for getting up early and being on the show. I know you have... Uh, a new uh, baby event at your house, so you probably don't get much sleep these days. Nope, so I was up and ready. Yeah, okay. <laughs> Thank you. And you were up, and you were up, and you were up. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Oh, well, congratulations on your new arrival. It's very, very special. Thank you very much. Um, Missy and Johnny, uh, if he can join us, we'll talk about this quite uncommon DNA case. So we'll leave those details for a little later. But first, let me tell you a little bit about Missy. Uh, Melissa, Melissa Dagg, it's pronounced Dagg? That's correct, yes. Melissa Dagg O'Connell received her JD with a concentration in public interest and social justice from Santa Clara University School of Law in 2003, and she was one of the founding practitioners with Fresh Life Lines for Youth. FLY, which is a legal nonprofit working at risk youth in Santa Clara County. 
Then Missy went to work as a public defender in Solano County, California, representing indigent clients who were charged with various both misdemeanor and felony level offenses. Then following her public defender experience, she joined a boutique criminal defense firm in Berkeley, California and practiced in multiple jurisdictions throughout all of Northern California. Then just in January 2010, found Missy returning to the Santa Clara School of Law, where she serves now as a staff attorney for the Northern California Innocence Project DNA Unit. This is where we come in on this case. As a lecturer in law, Melissa has taught courses in advanced legal writing, interviewing, and counseling. She served as a coach for the Juvenile External Honors Moot Court Competition. And so, Missy, let's um, let's work backwards on this case. So, okay. um, first of all, how did you get Johnny's case to begin with? Uh, there are various ways in which cases come to us in general at the Innocence Project, um, and typically they involve uh, correspondence with the inmate where they will write to our organization and ask us to review their case. Um, this is the most common way of obtaining a case. Otherwise, we get them um, through family members or um, attorneys themselves will refer a case. Um, when they've actually seen somebody they believe to be innocent have been convicted at the trial stage. Um, in Johnny's case, we actually received a letter from Johnny back in 2006 um, asking us to review his case. Um, and I was not with the project in 2006, um, and so other attorneys had reviewed his case um, and left it open. And unfortunately, because of limited resources at the Northern California Innocence Project, a lot of our cases um, sometimes take two to three years before an attorney can actually get involved in the case. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Johnny's case did um, c- kind of take a little bit of a back seat. And then in, 2000 and, uh, in November 2009, we received federal funding to create our DNA unit, and I came on board in January 2010, and Johnny was one of the cases that that came on my caseload. So, yeah, I mean, so uh, anybody who's listening and thinks this is a quick process, it is definitely not that, is it? No, not at all, uh, especially when you come from, uh, you know, the trial trenches where things are very quickly paced. Um, you know, innocence work in particular and post-conviction in general, um, it takes a long time. It takes a long time to investigate the cases, um, it, it takes a long time to collect information about the cases uh, because they tend to be much older. Um, in, in Johnny's case, uh, the conviction was in 2000. The crime was in 1998, um, and I received the case in 2010. So at that point, just obtaining information about what happened and documents from the court and previous attorneys can be difficult. Yeah, and you and when you do one of these, don't you have to get the entire entire trial transcripts, correct? Sure, absolutely. That's something we usually collect later once we learn a little bit more. What's unique about DNA cases? Because I I particularly focus on DNA cases, mm-hmm. um, and what I really appreciate about DNA cases is um, it kind of brings me back to trial work because the number one thing we have to obtain is police reports because we right. have to know. Um, what items of evidence were collected that could possibly have biological material um, that might not have been presented at trial. 
Um, and so we, we, with our DNA cases, start at the very beginning and get those police reports, get evidence logs, and go mm-hmm. from there. So do you get those directly from the police department or do you get them from the prosecutor? Uh, it varies. Uh, number one person we try to get them from is the trial attorney. Um, and if they don't have them, then we would go to the uh, prosecuting agency. A lot of times police agencies will tell us that we need to go through the DA's office. Um, it depends. Uh, we, we have different experience um, from different counties. Um, and, and a lot of times the inmate themselves has the information. And so we mm-hmm. often ask them for any records that they have, um, which obviously is a little bit easier for us to obtain. And not necessarily on this case, but what kind of resistance do you run into? Um, some re- you know, we, our reputation is preceding us, so now we, we, we're met with a little bit less resistance. But a lot of times, as you mentioned, Francie, in the beginning of your case, you know, talking about Johnny's case, you were an original investigator on the case. People put their blood, sweat, and tears into these cases. And so when post-conviction attorneys call, sometimes you're met with resistance <laughs> because people people really feel like they've done everything they possibly could in the case. Yeah. That's true of prosecutors and defense attorneys. Um, and so you might get a little, you might let it get a little resistance there, like from a prosecuting agency that they firmly believe that they, they prosecuted and, and received a conviction on the right person. And so for somebody to kind of get reinvolved in it, um, they don't, you know, basically sometimes we get the response of 12 jurors heard the case and convicted, you know, like mm-hmm. what, what more do you want? Um, right. and, and obviously our response is, you know, obvious, that's not enough, you know, wrongful convictions occur, um, throughout the nation, you know, and obviously they're the result of a conviction from either a jury trial or a plea. Um, that was wrong. So, um, so sometimes we, yeah, that personal vested interest in the case that could lead to resistance. Yeah. Um, I've run into that myself, actually working on a appeal where the uh, attorney just completely stonewalled us altogether. Sure. So yeah, we, I mean, sometimes you do get that and it's very unfortunate and I'm, I'm happy to say that we've, you know, there, sometimes it's just negligence, like the, the attorneys are too busy, they don't get back to you. Um, a lot of times we go through the court because the court maintains their files um, more so than some attorneys do. Um, sometimes we're met with the comment that, um, you know, we thought we only had to keep the file for 10 years, and mm-hmm. we, we we take that opportunity to educate you know, the, uh, either the defense bar, uh, it's typically, the, you know, the defense bar, unfortunately, um, and it's because of lack of resources, you know, uh, they just don't have the ability to store files. But there is no rule that says that, that you can destroy files after 10 years. Um, and in fact, when, when you do post-conviction work, you, you pray that attorneys do keep their files in some form. Obviously, now electronically is, is the way to go, and it's much easier for everyone. Mm-hmm. Um, but if they, if, files are destroyed, which has happened in some of our cases where there's there's nothing we can do. We can't even find out what happened in the case. Wow. Um, so that becomes frustrating. <laughs> Very frustrating. And what was it about Johnny's case that caught your attention in particular? Um, Johnny's case was always bothersome to me because... Um, it was based solely on a single eyewitness ID 
And in this case, it was the severely traumatized victim. Um, and so that always kind of concerns us in our cases, um, only because of the nature of, you know, the crime that somebody would be that severely traumatized and so to rely solely on their identification. Um, it just, you just want to scrutinize it a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, not saying it's right or wrong. It's just that you you do want to look into it a little bit more to see if there's corroborative evidence otherwise. Um, and so that was always something that was peculiar about the case, and particularly so because, as you mentioned previously, the family knew Johnny Williams, um, and yet when the little girl reported the crime, she said that the perpetrator identified himself as Johnny. And uh, that seemed a bit strange that someone would actually make a point of saying the perpetrator told me his name was Johnny when she and her family didn't, in fact, know who Johnny Williams was. Yeah, let's um, come back. Missy, let's come back to this. Yeah. We need to take a quick break. And that was sure. attorney Melissa, Missy O'Connell from the Northern California Innocence Project. We'll be right back. Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. If you'd like to talk, call us toll-free right now at 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. That's it. That's it. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. Stimulating talk gets those synapses in your brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one Internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. My guest today is Melissa O'Connell, an attorney with the Northern California Innocence Project, talking about the recently exonerated case of Johnny Williams from Oakland, California. So, um, Missy, we were just talking about this um, identification from this nine-year-old, and and certainly she was traumatized. But if I remember 
um, they immediately, well, you, you said they immediately targeted Johnny because he was a neighbor and a friend. That's right. When, uh, when the police received the information that the perpetrator identified himself as Johnny, um, they inquired with the family, and unfortunately the family just assumed um, that it was Johnny Williams um, because that was a Johnny that they had known from the neighborhood. And at that point, that was the end of it. Um, they then focused their investigation um, solely on Johnny Williams. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I believe, um, that if I remember correctly, the family made the, the mom, the rest of the family kind of made the jump that it was that Johnny because they knew him. That's right. They, it was just, you know, an, an an assumption that they made. And unfortunately it was a wrong assumption, Mm -hmm. but a logical Um, assumption as well. Unfortunately, I'm sorry. A logical assumption as well. Oh, sure. I mean, they. I mean, they had their. I mean, their child who was um, subject to this horrible crime, and they wanted to assist in in solving it. And so they provided the inf- the information to the police that they thought would be helpful to the case. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. So you got the case. And I'm, I, and I actually didn't realize you didn't get it till 2010. <laughs> so, yeah, no, that's, that's when our federal funding was in place um, to do solely DNA stuff. So we received a grant from the National Institute of Justice, um, and it's called the Bloodsworth Grant. And it was the federal government's way of assisting states in defraying their costs for post-conviction DNA testing because of all these DNA exonerations that were happening throughout the nation. And uh, so the funding was in place in January in 2010. So our unit specifically focused on cases that would have um, or have the highest likelihood of, of biological material. So they, we focused solely on uh, sexual assault cases and homicides at the time. Okay. Um, well, so, and you call this, this is a unit within the Northern California Innocence Project called the California DNA DNA project is that right? That, that's right. That's exactly right. And the only difference is we are so the National, the Northern California Innocence Project. Um, we are funded by um, by donations um, by um, private individuals who donate to our project. That is how we sustain our livelihood. And then um, we are fortunate um, to get grants um, at certain times. And uh, at that time in 2010, we had received this federal grant, but it was only to fund DNA cases. Um, and um, I don't know if you said this earlier, but with our project, um, we've had 16 victories and only That's two amazing. of them are DNA cases. So oh, wow. um, a lot of our exonerations um, are not based on DNA evidence. And so this funding was solely for DNA cases. And this funding runs out in September, doesn't it? Uh, it's, uh, November 1st is when it will run out. Um, November 1st of this year. That's right. Yeah. That's right. So just shy of a, a year from now is when the funding will run out. So listeners, let me say to you, if there's anybody that would like to support the California Innocence Project and the California DNA Project, um, this is really important because without this funding, DNA testing is highly expensive. 
And without this funding, uh, they won't be able to do it. So uh, you want to give the website, uh, Missy, where people can donate? Oh, God. <laughs> um, I actually <laughs> don't have it on hand. Okay. I wanted to just, I, um, embarrassingly so. Um, I, uh, I do want to point out, though, that there are various innocence projects throughout the nation. And um, California, we're very fortunate to actually have two innocence projects. And so I do want to just make the distinction that um, our particular organization is the Northern California Innocence Project. Right. Um, and, and we handle cases um, from Kern, Kern County and North. Um, and then the California Innocence Project handles all cases south of that. And so um, I, I do ask listeners, um, you know, to just uh, be mindful of the projects that you're donating to. Because unfortunately, sometimes people donate to the Innocence Project and they think they're benefiting, um, you know, California or the Northern California Innocence Project. And um, we're all different entities. Um, and so uh, I just encourage you to um, go to the Northern California Innocence Project Absolutely. Um, I pulled um, it up, uh, Misty. I have the site here now. It's uh, law.scu, S like Sam, C like Charles, U dot edu slash NCIP. Um, and that will pull up. Or if you just want to Google Santa Clara Law, Northern California Innocence Project, or just Northern California Innocence Project, you'll get it. And it has a right. button right there that says donate to NCIP. All right. Johnny has joined us. Hi, Johnny. Hey, how are you doing? Good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm all right. God has blessed me. They're very good. Okay. Well, we're just, um, I I think you caught some of this. We were just talking about um, the DNA project and how that just kind of fit right with your timeline. because as I was just saying, if you without the DNA project funding, the chance of your case getting your DNA on your case getting tested, um, you you may still be in prison. Yeah, there's a lot of things going on. Yeah. Um, but like I keep saying, God is good. So it's sent the saint my way to let the truth come out on what's going on. At this time of age, they do. If it, if it wasn't for the DNA, it would never, never happen. But I would be still locked up. I'd be on the streets right now. All right. So, so Johnny, let's go back to uh, an ugly time, in, unfortunately, in your life, June eighth, two thousand, when uh, the jury came in with their verdict. How, were, were you just couldn't believe it? Not only could I not believe it, I, um, you know when you hold animosity towards people, nine sure. times out of ten, that animosity will come back towards you. So when they had said that, it's not that I couldn't believe it. I know I'm innocent. I know I'm telling the truth. But right. other people was doing what they were doing at the time. So, I mean, I guess God let everything happen to sharpen me up as a person, to better me as a person. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why I'm who I am today. If I, I wouldn't talk to you at first, there's no reason for me to be talking to you. Right. But I'm talking to you right now because I have love for myself, just as well as love for everybody else. That's how I've always had love for people. But people will come and start lying deliberately on purpose to make you look like a bad person. That's not right. Yeah. 
I agree. And I have to tell you, Johnny, I really very much particularly appreciate that you're willing to be on the show today. You didn't hear what I my the introduction of the show, but I said it's really a sobering experience to find out that a case you worked on at me that I worked on as the investigator that the person was innocent and gets exonerated and I'm so happy that you were but I can tell you that there's a a huge huge um, lesson for me in looking at cases and I appreciate you being able to share your story I mean you did as much as you could right at the time but you know you have to look at cases where there's um, possible innocence. In all cases, all cases, you have to go above and beyond. So maybe there wasn't. Maybe there was something else we could have done. I don't know. I don't know. Were you there when I was coming in? Every time I came in, did you actually see me walk in the court? I was there sometimes, not every time. Okay. Yeah. I was usually sitting in the row right behind the attorney's uh, defense table. There was a nice amount of people that were sitting in court sometimes. Yeah. There better be a lot of people back there. I don't know. I was watching everything. Were you? Okay. But, But Francie, if I could just chime in. Good morning, Johnny. (laughs) Good morning, Miss. How are you doing? I'm good. Um, I, I would just chime in, you know, this is, Johnny's case is very unique in the sense that, um, we were just very fortunate that, uh, to get items of evidence retested that actually led to his exoneration. Um, you know, there, nobody changed their story or questioned what they said back in 1998. Uh, you know, and unfortunately that's what happens with a lot of times when somebody makes an ID of somebody, their their memory just shapes around that ID, and mm-hmm. they firmly believe that that's the person. Um, and so, you know, when we received a, the case, our investigation solely focused on how DNA could prove his innocence, because uh, we didn't necessarily believe that anyone would say something otherwise to support his innocence. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, you know, there are just some things that you you don't necessarily get by way of investigation. Um, and, and Johnny's one of those cases, uh, that DNA, fortunately, DNA was what we had. Yeah. And, you know, and, and Missy, um, we're going to take a break shortly because I want to get into this DNA testing because it is, it is really different. And you explained it to me on the phone the other day. Uh, and, some of it I had no idea what the process was. So I'm sure that many people don't have any idea. And so I want to get into that. But but um, before we do that, um, Johnny, yes. what was your experience? Um, so you're, you're charged as a sex offender. And that's uh, in prison. That's considered the worst, isn't it? Yes, it is. So I see a lot of things going on in prison. I see oh. a lot of things going on in prison and certain people that were tagged on that. But see me, I'm different. Okay. And what I'm different is I grew up on the streets. All right. Me growing up on the streets, people can feel. So you have a feeling on what type of person that you're speaking to. True. You, 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 are you speaking to a weirdo? Are you speaking to a man? You understand? When I was locked up, 
the way I get along with individuals on the tier wasn't how the weirdos, the weirdos were trying to hide what they were locked up for. Me, I was different. Me, I put it out there. This is what they put against me, and this is what I'm trying to do. I'm trying to get help to get up out of here. Mm-hmm. And I'm not one of these weirdos walking the tier. I'm a full-grown man. So it was a little bit different for me. Not just, it, it, it was different for me. It was different for me because I respected myself. I respected everybody else. I wasn't into doing drugs. Or I wasn't into he said, she said. I mostly stayed by myself. I respected people. And if you don't respect people, if you don't respect yourself, nobody in, in, in reality in, in public is going to respect you. No matter That's where right. you go. It could be inside prison, mm-hmm. the county jail. It could be on the streets. If you're the type of person that's always walking around doing something ignorant, sooner or later, these people will see that you're false in your face. That's why I always respect myself by being solid with people every day, like this. And you're right. And you're right. Absolutely right. Because that... If you're respecting yourself, you're conveying that to others. We need to take another quick break, Johnny. You're listening to Johnny Williams, a recent 2013 exoneree from the Northern California Innocence Project, and Missy O'Connell, an attorney with that same project. We'll be right back. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PI's Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PI's Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. Johnny, before the break, you were talking about uh, your experience in prison and how you maintained your self-respect. And you also never gave up, did you? No. You never gave up that you were going to be found innocent. No, no. Look. I knew that sooner or later somebody out there. Because I, I read the Bible. It's not that I read the Bible. I really do truly believe in a God, an unseen God. And I knew it says in the Bible that I will send saints, saints before you. And it's going to be messengers. And I knew that sooner or later somebody 
I don't know who. Somebody was going to help me out. All I had to do was stay by me nothing, okay? I didn't do drugs. I didn't get into certain things that certain things that were uh, will sidetrack you to be slow-minded as to what reality is. So I stayed focused on what God wanted for me to do, and now I'm here. And, and Johnny, were you in PC? Yes. You were. And what and yes. what prison were you in? I was in a different variety of prisons. Were you? I was in a lot of prisons. I was probably like nine different prisons. They kept moving me around. I wouldn't yeah. sit in one place because to me, somebody, they was trying to either set me up for the downfall because I was one of them type of people that stay in the Bible and stay in my cell, stay out the way. I didn't bother people. Mm-hmm. And they just kept throwing people in the cell with me that, uh, that was doing certain things that to me wasn't right. So I wouldn't want to sell up with them. And, uh, you know, the COs didn't like that. It's amazing. Yeah. And Johnny, and Johnny actually, he's being quite humble right now. But Johnny, Johnny worked in the prisons. Um, he was uh, he worked in the diet kitchen. He was a porter in the prisons. He participated in a, in a wide variety of self help programs um, during his fourteen years, um, so that when he did get out, he had you know acquired a certain skill set so that he could. Um, transition as best he could um, once he did get back out into the community. Um, so he really did take advantage of any resources that would be offered to him. That's great. I, you know, I, I mean, I ha- I can't imagine. I can't imagine what you went through. But I give you lots and lots of credit for making the best out of the situation. I had to. If not. Look, they had me physically. I wouldn't let them give me psychologically. Come on now. That would have turned me crazy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'd mean, yeah. probably be on the streets right now taking medication, walking back and forth. Yeah. No. No, I stay for it. It's a must. It's a I've always been a strong person mentally. That's great. No matter how many people come against me psychologically. Like when I was on the streets the first time, yeah, I went to church and everything. But I didn't too much just take the Bible. My grandma used to always give me the Bible and be like, the story is right here, baby. You read this right here. (laughs) I remember your grandmother. She is a wonderful lady. And she believed in you. She never stopped believing in you. I didn't do nothing. I didn't do There's no reason. Okay. Yeah. I didn't do anything. Right. Now, you starting to get to my mental. I'm not about to be sitting up here shedding tears (laughs) on my phone. (laughs) <laughs> I, know. I know. Well, let's go. Let's go back to the DNA process, okay? Um, so, what happened at the trial level? Correct me, Missy, if I get this a little skewed. Uh, what happened at the trial level is that the prosecution sent the the shirt that belonged to the little girl to the forensic lab, to an outside forensic lab. Right. And they came back and said there was no biological evidence on the shirt, even though the little girl said there there would have been there. Right. So what became why the the uh, the young girl's t-shirt was collected? Um, she had reported that uh, the perpetrator had left biological material on her t-shirt. Uh, the uh, district attorney's office sent it to a private crime lab. 
to do testing. The lab did um, everything that would be done today with respect to the lab checking for enzymes that are commonly found um, in that type of biological material, um, a protein found in it. Um, they uh, received neg- negative results. Um, they microscopically examined um, certain cuttings from the T-shirt to see if they could find any biological material, and they couldn't. And so the testing ended at that moment. So no DNA testing was actually performed because the lab concluded that there was no li- biological material on the T-shirt. Okay. Um, and so that, and, and fortunately, the T-shirt was collected. That's yes, the first absolutely. thing that was done correctly. Yes, and it was and it was properly preserved, which is a huge thing for a lot of our cases. It's one thing to collect an item of evidence, but to have it properly preserved over the years to maintain the integrity of the biological material that becomes critical. Um, and so, it was properly um, stored in his case. That's great. And then you get the case to the DNA project, and then what happens? Um, so although the results indicated that there was no biological material on the T-shirt, um, we asked the district attorney's office if they would agree to retesting of the shirt. And uh, to bog down to details, only because they are really critical in Johnny's case, is the initial lab took three cuttings from stained areas of the T-shirt. Um, and we talked to a bunch of criminal um experts, um, criminalists, and said, you know, is there a chance that biological material could have been missed? And um, the assessment was basically, yes, a more thorough examination of the T-shirt could certainly, or at least it's reasonable, that it could yield different results. And um, so that's when we began discussions with the Alameda County District Attorney's Office, and the DA on the case was uh, wonderful, and um, she was instrumental in this case uh, because she did agree to testing. Um, to, she agreed to initial testing of the T-shirt. We sent it out to another private lab, uh, the, Sero- the Serological Research Institute in Richmond, mm-hmm. um, and the criminalist there was actually able to find biological material. Um, and at that, but very time, very little but, though. Right. Very little, very little yeah. at the time um, it was, uh, but uh, enough that um, they could get a male profile. Um, but there was still some issues with the testing on whether or not they could uh, rely on the source of the DNA, mm-hmm. um, whether that it be like somebody's throw up, that it actually was um, related to the crime, um, in this case, a sexual assault. So. Um, that is when the DA and I um, sat back down and we actually met with the Oakland Police Department Crime Lab and um, the Oakland Police Department Crime Lab agreed to do further testing um, and they, their position was basically we're going to have to consume the T-shirt so that we make sure we get the most reliable results, which was huge. Um and so they did end up taking. So the first lab took three cuttings, couldn't find anything. The private lab, Siri, um, took nine and and found that critical piece of biological material. And then um, Oakland Police Department ended up taking thirty cuttings, and that is where we got the uh, the conclusive results that there was an unknown male 
um, DNA profile on the victim's T-shirt, and Johnny was not that man. Now, let me ask you, Missy, is, is three-cutting standard protocol? Um, I, you know, I don't know. I think it depends. It depends on the lab. I know there there are standardized universal policies and procedures amongst the labs. Um, I don't know if there's a particular number that is affiliated with items of evidence. We have certainly seen in lab reports that because of resources, the lab does um, determine that uh, a certain number of cuttings is the most cost-efficient way to do it. So uh, we honestly, we don't know. Um, This is a case in which the the, uh, testing that was done in 98 is the same testing our labs ended up doing. So um, there was no advancement in technology. It really was just there were only certain areas of the T-shirt that uh, had the critical biological material, and it just went missed the first time. And And they were testing where there were stains, right? That's right, yep, and and that's ultimately what our two labs did as well. Um, it, it literally was getting the right getting the right spot. Well, this is really, I mean, this feels really scary to me because, I mean, this is three different labs doing the testing, and finally you have enough to exclude Johnny from the, from the DNA that was on the shirt conclusively. So, right. And that never, that just never happens. Right. I mean, tr- truly, I mean, the resources is, is critical, right? I mean, going back to the fact of why the federal government, you know, felt the need to give this money in the first place, right, was to defray the, the state's cost of post-conviction testing because it costs so much. So you can only imagine how much it costs at the, you know, it, it costs the same at the trial stage. And if you don't, if you don't have the resources, whether it be the county's resources or the defense um, attorney's resources, um, there might be a missed opportunity to lead to exculpatory evidence, which ultimately happened in this case. Um, and it wasn't by anyone's wrongdoing, you know. Nobody right. did anything wrong. It just um, all that we could attribute it to was the, the lack of resources back then. Um, and at the end of the day, the they believed they had the right perpetrator, so, um, right. you know, there wasn't necessarily the incentive to try to find anything additional because they they had an eyewitness ID of the perpetrator. But they always think they have the right perpetrator. Right, <laughs> you know? right, right. And yeah. eyewitness, eyewitness misidentification occurs. Um, the, the Innocence Project um, on their website, they hold the statistics and, and um, of the um, DNA exonerations throughout the nation. Nearly 75% of them um, involve eyewitness um, misidentification. So um, it's, it's yeah. huge. It's astonishing, really. It's just astonishing. And we right. and juries, jurors place so much credit to the eyewitness ID. Sure. They, they do. Wow. Um, so, so, so I have to say that the Oakland Police Department Crime Lab needs to have a lot of recognition for because there are many crime police crime labs across the country that would have resisted 
going as far as they did? Sure. I mean, we were, I, I, Oakland Police Department was instrumental in establishing Johnny's um, innocence, and so was theory. If, if, if Serological Research Institute, if their criminalist did not go to the length mm-hmm. that she did, she wouldn't have found that literal bit of biological material um, that opened the door for Oakland Police Department to want to do the testing as well. Um, and so both crime labs and the district attorney's office were instrumental in, um, in, in establishing Johnny's innocence. Okay, we need to take another break, Missy and Johnny. More to come with exoneree Johnny Williams and Melissa O'Connell. Stay tuned. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787. 1-866-472-5787. VoiceAmerica.com. Need to hire a private investigator? Ask for their professional association affiliations. When an investigator asks Francie Kaler about associations, she says to first join a state trade association. Francie belongs to the California Association of Licensed Investigators, or CALI. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at cali-pi.org or call one 800 350 C-A-L-I. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com. You're listening to P.I.'s Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1-866-472-5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler. We're back with Johnny and Melissa. And uh, Missy, I was just thinking, uh, do you think that either Siri or the original crime lab, Siri, or the Oakland Police Department crime lab will change their protocol on how they test for DNA after this? Um, you know, because I don't, I, I don't know definitively what their protocols are, um, you know, I don't know if it's something that requires that much of a change. Um, but certainly we use Johnny's case as an example in cases that we negotiate um, with other uh, agencies. Mm-hmm. Um, to, when when there is some mention of okay we're going to look at this item of evidence and we're going to take two cuttings from it, um, I often bring up Johnny's case and say, well wait a minute, you know we have this case in which we limited the number of cuttings and we didn't find anything. What can we do to expand that? And um, and so all we can hope is that 
um, you know, the forensics community does realize, uh, or at least uh, take this case and put it in the back of their heads and go, okay, you know, there are unique cases in which we might miss something if we don't go mm-hmm. the extra steps. But there's always a concern of consuming the evidence as well, which mm-hmm. is really hard at the trial stage um, to agree to consume evidence. Right. Um, because that's... Well, then you can't do anything. Um, and, you know, it was interesting. I'm sorry, were you going to say something, Johnny? No. <laughs> oh, okay. I thought you were going to say something. <laughs> okay. Um, uh, one of the things you mentioned to me, which I thought was interesting, is the Oakland Crime Lab decided to go one step further and make sure that, that there was biological evidence on the shirt that indicated the shirts belonged to the little girl as well. That's right. That's right. At the end of the day, they also tested for uh, wearer DNA, which would um, provide evidence to support that she was the one who wore the shirt so that there were no issues as to uh, chain of custody because the case had, uh, the crime had occurred in 98, and here we are, fast forward to 2013, um, so 15 years later, um, just to confirm that, you know, for contamination or chain of custody, that this did, in fact, belong to the to the young girl. And, and they did confirm that. Um, and so when all of this evidence came to a head, uh, the Northern California Innocence Project, we filed a habeas petition on behalf of Johnny um, based on the claim of actual innocence. And the Alameda County District Attorney's Office conceded the petition because the results were so clean, establishing it was related to the crime. There was biological material related to the sexual assault, and Johnny Williams was not the perpetrator. And so the finding was a finding of factual innocence? That's right. And how does that affect Johnny at this point? Uh, Well, at that point, Johnny had been released from prison on January seventh, two 2013, um, he had served uh, 85% of his 16-year term, um, and so he was released. But when he was released, he was released um, with the conditions of registering as a sex offender and wearing a GPS tracking device, um, which he fully complied with upon his release. And um, the habeas petition was granted on March 8th. For So for almost exactly to the day, two months, um, he was still living with these restrictions on his liberty. Um, and so on March 8th, um, he was able to walk into the parole office and have the GPS tracking device cut off of his ankle. Um, and uh, and within, within a certain period of time after the petition was granted, his name was removed from the, uh, the registration database. Okay. Now... If Johnny applies for a job, does he is he required to tell him he's been in prison? Uh, well, so it's it's kind of twofold. He is. We just had his case sealed, um, so he uh, he does not need to he does not need to report that he was convicted of this crime because he was found factually innocent and the the conviction was reversed and dismissed. And um, so, but but. When you walk into an employer and uh, they want to know what you've been doing the last 14 years, mm-hmm. um, you know, at that time, Johnny would would disclose what he's been doing, and, and it's been things that he was doing in prison. 
Um, and as I mentioned previously, you know, he was working, and so he has developed a certain skill set that he would have to attribute to his work experience in prison. Um, and with a lot of our exonerees, Johnny included, they walk around with their story. They walk around with their newspaper clippings, um, uh-huh. with, with our business cards, um, so that they, you know, they do get to share their story um, and explain why, you know, they do have this gap in their, in their work history um, or in, in, in their history in general. And, and Johnny, what... I know I know you have plans and I know it's been tough even though you're free it has to be a a tough situation um right now so what what are your plans what what would you like to tell us Wow I have different variety of types of plans but will they all come true <laughs> I don't know uh <laughs> Let's see I've been out since January the 7th um, before I get out, a certain individual told me, you'd be right back. A CEO told me, you'd be right back, right? Due to me, I've never been locked up a day in my life. So that right there gave me enough, you know, strength and energy to yeah. stay focused on what reality is and keep my head in these books. Um, like I said, God has blessed me with a second chance of life, and I've taken it. So I think what I'm focusing on right now I've been going to school. I went to the um, an adult school for okay. regular GED. And what are you learning? I would like to own something. I would like to have people working for me. Okay. <laughs> well, like a woman's home or something for the handicapped, the kids that can't vouch for themselves. Um, I ain't trying to be funny, but they call them, you know, MRs, mentally retarded. I want to be in that and have people working. There's a lot of women. I'm going to this church. The church that I'm going to has certain goals that people have set, too, that they want to do for themselves. So I can maybe come together with one or two people, dealing with the females, and I can get this what I want, buy a house, and just do just do certain things. Okay. All right. So the, you would like to have, uh, just to repeat this, you'd like to have the kind of a business where you could help um people that are mentally retarded or have mental uh, challenges? Yes, because not all of them. You have people, look, right now in these mental institutions across the world, they're still labeling people, and they're not even, there's nothing really wrong with them. Not all, there's nothing. 50% of those people, there isn't anything wrong with them. They just need a little bit of TLC on how to survive every day. That's it. They don't need no pills and make them walk around like zombies shuffling their feet all day. Mm-hmm. I was right there with them. That's how I know what I'm talking about. Majority mm-hmm. of them people, man, they weren't crazy. They weren't crazy. Just They was going through so much pain to where the pain was making them go backwards. They couldn't right. handle the pain like me. I, I could handle it. If I couldn't handle it, like I said, right now, I'd be on medication. I'd be taking pain medication psychologically just as well as physically because I would have beat my body all up. By me being in prison all the time, I mostly preserved my body because, like I said, I wasn't doing certain things that other people were doing. So, God well, Johnny, I, I have a great amount of respect for you, and uh, I really wish you well. I feel badly that I was part of this system that ended up with your conviction, no, but no. I'm really, I'm really happy like you're that. out. You're a good person. 
God only bless you with as much as you can see. Yeah. You ain't doing nothing wrong. You did everything right. I mean, yeah, well, well, thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. <laughs> and both of you, Missy and Johnny, we're at the end of our show here. I, I so much appreciate you being on the show. This is such a huge message that needs to be out across the country. Everybody needs oh, to hear this message. Oh, to my lawyer, Melissa. She's a good person. You guys look her up. <laughs> Yeah, okay. All right. We have to close the show. Thanks, you guys. Uh, Thank you, Francie. Yeah, thanks. Tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PIs Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. Thanks for listening. Thanks so much for being with us today. You've been listening to PIs Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern Time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth. Every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific Time, here on the Voice America Variety Channel.